Please pray with me. Father God, we are so thankful to be in your presence, to be surrounded by your grace, that your mercies today are brand new. And Lord, we need you. And it is not well in our soul without you. You are the one that makes things well. You are the one that has come to complete and redeem and reconcile us back to yourself. And that's why we're here, is to celebrate those truths and to be sharpened, God, through your word. And I pray that your word would guide us right now through the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you. We need you. We trust you. You are good. You are great. You are glorious. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Luke Seifert. Uh, some of you guys I haven't had the chance to meet yet, but I look forward to spending time with you. And some I have had a chance to spend some time with. And uh, it's been a blessing to me and to Lauren. Uh, and some of you have met our two little girls running around, Chloe and Jocelyn. Uh, they're sweet. They're a little crazy, but they're sweet. So just love on them. I'm so thankful for you guys just welcoming us. It's been so encouraging being a part and being, uh, being here for the last three weeks and look forward to many years of uh, being here and serving with you guys. Uh, in 2003, I was a, a, an assistant baseball coach at Southern Wesleyan University. I played baseball there. I transferred from Anderson and went to Southern Wesleyan. And when I showed up the year before I showed up, uh, the baseball team uh, was 1 in 51. That was the record. So they're taking anybody, <laughs> right? Uh, and so I, I came over and I started playing. I played two years and, and uh, Mike asked me to stay on. and said, hey, would you come in and be an assistant coach? And I was like, sure. So we get there and I'm like, hey, what's your philosophy in, in uh, recruiting baseball players? He said, well, the school wants us to recruit Christians and make them into good baseball players. I said, okay, good. Uh, how's that working out? Yeah. <laughs> So I asked him, well, what if we started recruiting good baseball players and we make them into disciples? And so as we continue the series this morning uh, on the up, in, and out, and how we are being shaped by the gospel to be disciples, we, God has given us these gifts. We are who we are, but he is continuing to shape us through this body and through his word. And we need one another. And so this Up, In, and Out series is a call that we might be tethered to God's Word, as JP talked about a couple weeks ago. That we would be ingrained and deep in a prayer to the Lord on a constant childlike faith. That we would proclaim the gospel as we got to, to experience last week when five people were baptized. And proclaiming the truth that God has done an internal work in them and they want to make an external expression of His goodness. And we have to be tethered to those things before we really get to the place of what we're going to talk about today in John 13, is being able to serve. And we think about serving, we think about how important that is, and so often we think, well, I can just do this, and I don't have to be tethered to God's Word. I don't have to be in prayer. I don't need to go and proclaim the gospel in my words and my actions. And we get that backwards, and we get that mixed up. And so this morning we're going to, we're going to talk about that. Jesus said, I've come to serve. I've come to serve, not to be served. Paul, in his theology throughout his writings, bases his theology on servanthood on John 13. Philippians 2.5, um, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. And so we are going to look at the up, the in, and the out. We're actually going to go in a little bit different order because I think the text unpacks it in a different order. It starts in verse 1 through 7 and we start looking at the the in. We were made to love one another. We were made to love one another. So let's start in the text. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, we knew when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's Passover week. It's a Thursday night where most Jews would start the celebration. It's about a 24-hour window of when you would eat this, this meal. And they are uh, enjoying one another's company. They, Jesus has sent them ahead to go grab, uh, follow a man, and, and ask to borrow his room. And so they ask this man, and it is just as Jesus said, and he leads them to a room that's fully furnished. And the Jews that were there to celebrate uh, Passover and across Jerusalem, they were celebrating because... In, uh, in Exodus, we see where God gives Moses and Aaron the call and says, I want you to go, and it's the tenth plague. I want you to go and I want to sacrifice a lamb, and then I want you to put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your homes. And the Lord is going to pass through and is going to kill all the firstborn Egyptians. And so the Jews are celebrating Passover. They're celebrating, and they've, and they've celebrated that every single year since that happened. And so they're all together and they're excited about this. And, and this very moment in the temple where we've heard like the temple has become this, this marketplace where people are buying and selling. Jesus isn't too happy about that. Well, these people will go in and they buy tens of thousands of lambs and goats in the temple. And this 24-hour window, he, all these people would start sacrificing these animals. And then they would consume them into their bellies. And also in the next 24 hours starting at this very moment... Jesus, too, would be the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And he, too, would be sacrificed and he'd be consumed into the earth for three days. And these Jews are now excited and looking forward to the celebration of Passover. But at the same time, something is about to heighten. Because Jesus knows in the next 24 hours he has to be on the cross. That's part of the Father's will. It's part of the Father's plan. He was anticipating this very hour. Jesus knew when his time wasn't to come. We've had that time where he said, it's not my time, and he was able to escape certain situations. But this is his time. This was the moment. This was the the moment, the hour that he was anticipating to start his journey towards the cross. And I think he does it with with great delight and, and anticipation. And everything begins heightened from this point on. And Jesus is with his disciples until the end. He's loving the ones that he had been discipling in this world. And he's with them, and he's going to love them even to his death on a cross. Then in verse 2 it says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, uh, Simon's son, to betray him, the enemy had started working on Satan a long time ago. And so Judas, even though he was a disciple, he still had sin. He still struggled. He was the money holder. He held the purse. He took when he needed to take. He gave when Jesus told him to give, but the enemy had already planted a seed in his heart. And so Jesus at this moment even, I mean, Judas at this moment even knew that he was going to betray Jesus. And Jesus was fully and completely aware of that. Later on this night, Judas would be entered. Satan would enter in to Judas. 
And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that this was part of the plan. This was part of the trip to Calvary. Even to the point of the finest details that we go back and look in Zechariah 11 where there was 30 pieces of silver exchanged. The, the, the fulfillment of Scripture is happening in this very room right, right now. And so Judas, knowing that he was going to portray Jesus, and knowing that Jesus knew that Satan was going to enter into to Judas, Judas was thinking, hey, I'm going to give over my master for a new master. Judas thought that he was ending the life of Jesus Christ. And the conclusion of it was his life would be at end. And then in verse 3, we see that Jesus is knowing that the Father had given all things into the hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. There's a couple beautiful things in, in this sentence. One is that all these things, all things have been given over to Jesus for his glory, for his use. All those from the beginning of time, all the people on heaven and on earth were at the the right hand of Jesus to be used for his glory, including Judas. And Judas is now a tool, a tool that Jesus chooses to use, the Father chooses, chooses to use to make the path to Calvary. There's also this beautiful picture that we get to see of the Trinity right here. Jesus is saying, hey, I have been with the Father, and the Father sent me here to be with you. And now I'm going back to be with the Father. From the, the very beginning of time, Jesus was with God in the beginning. He was there for creation. He was there for the, the crafting and shaping of people and animals and the earth. And he was there saying, you will use these things on this earth to glorify the Father one day. And that is an awesome thing. And we know that, that Jesus loves his disciples and that we were made to love one another through this expression of what he's about to do, starting in verse 4. Jesus rose from supper, and he laid his, aside his outer garment, and taking the towel, tied it around his waist. When he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus did a really strange thing. Now, Something that we didn't talk about about the Passover meal is, is there's usually a leader of the Passover meal, someone that would be the, the, the one that is the uh, position of honor, the master of the ceremony. And the way that they would lay out these meals most of the time is that the tables were about knee height, about co- coffee table height. And people wouldn't sit in chairs, but they'd actually sit on the floor and they'd recline and sit on pillows. And they would normally, as they enter into a room, their feet would be washed because they're going to be in such tight quarters. And the head of the, the, head of the, the ceremony would sit at the head of the table, and it was a U-shaped table. And the position of the status of those that were in the room would be known based off of how close they were sitting to the master of the ceremony. And so we know the disciples, and they're, they're kind of fighting for position, and they're always wanting to know, you know, God, what's next, and, and who, who are you using, and how can I be used, and, and who's going to be the greatest among, among us? And so they're fighting sometimes for the status. Well, since this is a borrowed room, then whoever they borrowed it from, they obviously didn't lend a servant to meet them there to wash their feet. So as they enter into the room and they sit around the table, their feet are still dirty. Okay, And so nothing worse than having a foul smell at the dinner table, right? So right now we got guys with dirty feet, and most of the time they may have been clean, as we see in a second, but their feet, they've been walking in the dirt. 
and they might have other things that kind of have an odor. And they, when they sit down, they sit with their feet to their side, and so they'd be uncomfortably close to the food, to the table, and to one another. And so I posed the question of why didn't one of the disciples wash the feet? There wasn't the servant, and it was, it was very common for when you went into a room like this for a formal meal, you've got to have clean feet, clean hands, clean face. Those are ceremonial practices. And yet the disciples are sitting there just allowing this to go on, just being like, hey. And here's the deal, is that the disciples, I think any of them would have been glad to wash Jesus' feet. But if they were to wash Jesus' feet, then they would have to wash all of their feet. And pride stopped them from doing that. Pride is what stopped them because they also know that only the lowest servant would be the one that would wash feet. And so they'd be putting themselves in the position of lower than the other disciples. And so all 12 of them are sitting there going, you do it, I'm not doing it, you do it. I'm not going to do it. And so it didn't get done. I think it's a key point to how we, when we look at this text, of how Jesus is going to teach them how to serve. They will remember this. Peter talks about it in, uh, in his writings later on where he says that, uh, that we have to be submissive to one another. This is going to be something, this is decades later, Peter is going to write about this. It's going to be ingrained in him as a huge moment in his life and in the rest of the disciples' life. But we know that after they finish this meal in Luke 25, they leave the Passover meal and they begin arguing who's going to be the greatest amongst themselves. That was their takeaway. And so when we read the next text, it says in verse 6, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward you will understand. They're, they're living in the already not yet. They're living in that moment of like, I'm experiencing these things, but I don't know why I'm experiencing these things. We're on the other side of that. We get to see the rest of the story before they do. And so we live in the now. And there is a already, not yet, still to come. But right now we understand why we're going to, to dig into this. And so there's a question, that, or a, a question that I want us to kind of wrestle with is, why, do, why are we called to serve a broken world? And I think the answer is this. We know who we are serving, then we'll know why we are serving. And so that's the, the end focus of all this, is that Jesus is using this moment to love on his, on his guys. I mean, he's washing their feet. He is lowering himself to the lowest position and washing their feet. And then we get to experience the up in verses 8 through 12. We see that we were made to worship God Verse 8 says, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I think it's hard for Peter to get his head around the master of the ceremony, his master, his teacher, his rabbi, coming to this position and washing his feet. I think he's wrestling with that. And I think it's a fair thing for him to wrestle with. He doesn't understand what Jesus is about to teach him because he even says, you're not going to understand what I'm about to do. But this washing has a double meaning. It is a literal foot washing. Jesus is literally going to get down on his hands and knees as we see, take off his outer garment, wash their feet, dry their feet. 
Because somebody has to do it. And Jesus recognized none of you guys were willing to do it. So now I'm going to use this as a, as a live parable. I'm going to get down on my hands and knees and I'm going to wash. I'm going to do the things that you were not willing to do. And I'm going to explain to you why I'm doing this. And so he gets down. And the second part of the meaning of, uh, of the washing of the feet is that he's looking at Peter. And it is, a, it is a cleansing as well for his sins for today. And that's the parable side of it. Is that we, as followers in Christ, are called to come to Christ daily and ask for forgiveness. Ask for a daily cleansing. And we need to do that every single day. And so in verse 9 we see the, the rest of it. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, if that's the case, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Two key words in this, this sentence that Jesus says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash. Sometimes we think about those as being interchanged, but this is actually the word bathe here is a total washing. And it would be used mostly on babies, they use this kind of language on babies, a mother bathing a child. That's someone you need, someone to wash you. You need someone to get the places that you can't see or you don't know would be dirty. And they use it on corpses. where They wash the body completely before they wrap it in the linen and put it in the grave. And so he's saying that if you have been bathed, then you don't need to be washed. And the washed word here is a ceremonial, hands, feet, face it's a daily use we daily need to wash our hands we daily need to wash we daily need to ask the lord come to the lord lord please forgive me of my sins today but he's saying that if you've been have been bathed if you have been covered and cleansed by the blood of christ if christ is the one that has has cleansed you then you don't need to be bathed again his bathing is once. It is an all-purpose, one-time thing. And that's what he's telling Peter here, is that you have been bathed, but not all of you. You are clean, but not all of you. The total bathing can only be done through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Christ is the one that is the one that comes to bathe us. So he's drawing this picture of a man that's kind of going to, that's, that's going to a, a ceremony and he's cleaned up, he's bathed himself and he's walked to the festival, he's walked to the feast. And as he walks in, he recognizes, hey, I need my feet cleaned because I've been walking this path, I've been walking in this world. And I know that as we walk in this world, we have daily struggles. We have daily sin and we need to be cleansed before we come to the table. We're going to take communion today, the Lord's Supper and the call is to examine your heart, right? The call is to say, God, I want to give you all these things that I struggle with so that I can be cleansed, so I can be washed again before I come to your table. I need to make things right with you. I need to make right things right with my neighbors. I need to be washed so that I can come because you have cleansed me. And that's the, the operation. That's why we do what we do. And then in verse uh, at the end there, he, said, he, he changes the language to the plural, and he says, and you guys, all of you guys are clean, disciples. But not all of you, but not every one of you. And he's talking about, of course, Judas. And that's what he says, for he knew 
who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12, when, we, when he had washed their feet and put on their outer garment and resumed, his, uh, resumed to his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done? I love this picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and then inviting them into, hey, I want you to examine this. Think about it. Do you understand what I've done? This is that up relationship. He has come. He has bathed us. He's saved us. He's cleansed us. We have this beautiful relationship with him. Jesus is saying that's offered to you. And then he goes after doing the lowest of low positions, and he goes and sits back at the head of the table. Just to remind him, you guys know who I am, right? You call me master, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, and I'm sitting at the, that seat, yet I just washed your feet. Do you understand? Do you understand what I've done? And they haven't and they don't. But it shows that, that the, the position that Jesus is giving here is that uh, he doesn't care about position at the table. He's not caring about a verbal recognition he did what he did because he can only do what the Father tells him to do. And he did that to glorify God. He did this thing to glorify the Father. He was washing the disciples' feet, but he was serving the Father. And when we know our who, we will know our why. When we know who we are serving, we will know why. We are serving. And Jesus is, is exemplifying that right here. He wasn't serving the disciples. He was washing the disciples' feet. He was serving the Father to glorify God. And that is why we are called into this service, is that we do anything that we do, we should do for the work of God. Not for the work of your neighbor or your friend or your wife or your kid. That's a secondary tier. The first tier is I am serving God and I'm doing these things in this world. And so there's the out part. It says we are made to glorify God. In verses 13 through 17, I love, it reminds me of the picture of the shepherd that leads the 99 sheep and goes after the one that's lost. And so he says, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. These disciples weren't always disciples. They weren't always followers of Christ. Jesus went to them and cared for them and called them out to walk and to be with them. And that is, that, that is our call in this world, is to go into a lost world and invite sojourners, people that are asking questions, that are curious about the Lord, invite them into conversations. Proclaim the gospel through our, our heart, through the way that we serve even, even our neighbor. When we do something kind for our neighbor, it's because we're serving God. And that God would plant the seed, and God would water the seed, and God would grow the seed, and God would bring salvation to those that don't know the Lord. Jesus is establishing who he is. And the dichotomy that the, the great king of kings would go down to the lowest position He's setting an example for his disciples. But I'm not sure if the action is as important as the heart behind the action. I think the heart behind the action is that I want to glorify and I want to serve God first. 
Because some of these guys would go and they would have to, to rake the dung out of barns. And some of these guys would go and they would be leading the, the largest church planting movement in the history. And they'd be serving in that capacity. But the capacity is that they're serving God, not just the church. Not their wife or their kids or their neighbor. But they're serving God first. And then the next layer out, they get to feel the power of when someone, when we get to serve God. Charles Spurgeon wrote, wrote this. If there's a position in the church where the worker will have to toil hard and get no thanks for it, take it and be pleased with it. If you can perform a service which few will ever seek to do themselves or appreciate when performed by others, occupy it with holy delight. Covet humble work, and when you get it, be content to continue in it. There is no great rush after the lowest places. You will rob no one by seeking them. We are called to serve as Christ has served. And he sets his example of doing the lowest of the low position. But it's the heart that Christ did it was to glorify the Father. And so he says, for I have given you an example that you also should, just, should do just as I have done for you. This isn't just a checklist like, hey, we're Christians, I'm going to go do the next Christian thing, and we blow right past who we are serving. And if we know our who, then we will know why we serve. And if we forget who we are serving, then we are serving ourselves. And I've done that. I've done that in the church, I've done that on missions, I've done that in my home, I've done it with my kids, where I've served and I've served and I've served and I've been exhausted. And at the end of the day, I was left with nothing because I was expecting something in return. But that's not the call. The call is that if we're going to serve the church, if we're going to serve in the mission field, if we're going to serve our neighbor, our wife, our kid, our husband, if we're going to serve them, then the first primary call is that we would serve who? Jesus. Serve the Father. And then at the end of the day, you don't have any expectations. You don't have think, oh, I'm owed something. At the end of the day, you are content by serving the one that has called and said, imitate me. And that is the greatest, that is the greatest calling. And Jesus shows us that in Matthew twenty five, thirty two. It says, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for, for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did, you see, when did I see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did you see... When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. To be a disciple of Christ is to recognize a need in your neighborhood, in the body, in your family, to recognize the need, 
and then serve inside that need for the glory of God as an act of worship. The challenge that Jesus has given his disciples is could you rake the dung off your brother's feet while worshiping God? Can we do the same thing? Can we get our position of being the lowliest and find our position as worship? Worship to the Father. And that is the call of the disciple. And that is the challenge to all of us. No matter where we are in life, we still constantly need to be reminded of that. So the who is that we serve is the Father. And the why is so that we can glorify His name. And verse 16 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Holy and righteous God, we are so thankful for your word, God, how it pierces our hearts, how it leads us, how it guides us. God, it is our life support. And Lord, that we would confess that we don't do this well. God, I confess I don't do this well. Lord, I pray that you would help me, help your bride to find themselves in the lowest position with a heart to worship you and you alone. And that people that don't know you at all might experience it and they might be drawn in through grace, through mercy, through kindness, and they'd be quick to repent and believe because that's what you did to us, God. You drew us in through kindness, through love, through serving. You drew us in and you taught us what it meant to repent and believe. And we know that we have to do that daily. God, give us the courage to come before you and confess our sins. Give us the, day, the, the ability to be cleansed, to be washed daily for your glory. And we say and pray all these things with a desperate need of you. Praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.